0: Take your Bibles, turn to Philippians 2, Philippians chapter 2, return now to the text here. Um, We've been working our way through Philippians 2 for a little while, and when you go verse by verse through a book, uh, sometimes you come upon a section or a passage that you can tell Bible uh, teachers, Bible commentators struggle to draw meaningful application out of. Now, if uh, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but uh, there are no pages in the Bible that uh, have not been taught through over and over and over again uh, over the last 2,000 years. There are no sections that have not had volumes of pages written on them by commentators because of that if you get deeply into studying a particular book of the bible and you buy a couple of faithful bible commentaries because maybe you don't have a lot of you know, historical Christian depth or uh, you're not a, a, a Greek major, so you, you buy a commentary to make sure that you're not missing some point that's happening in the original language or or some call out to something you should recognize on the page that you would otherwise miss. If you get deeply into studying a book of the Bible and you start to, you know, read through a commentary, might even be the notes, you know, at the bottom of of a study Bible, but those are usually just scratching the surface of, of, uh, you know, a deep study of a text. You'll come across sections um, in whatever you're looking at, um, undoubtedly, where you can tell that they are trying to do the section justice, they're trying to be faithful to it, and look at it diligently, and consider it carefully, but... There's not much in the section to capture the imagination, like it's just a passage it's there it's uh certainly not bad or unhelpful, but it's it's a you know sometimes these can be lengthy it's a section of verses and you can tell as you're reading through the the Bible commentator that you know they're they're struggling to get <laughs> to get a lot out of this and if you've ever read the Bible and you you get stuck in, maybe you're on a, a Bible reading plan. Have any of you ever done the Bible reading plans? Okay, and you get to Numbers and you start going through the book of Numbers and after 10 or 15 minutes, you're like, what in the world am I doing here, you know? And, and there's that moment where you're like, I know that I should have the discipline to plow through the rest of this and, and proceed, but I also know that I am not getting anything out of this whatsoever and uh, and maybe that's true, maybe it's not. but uh, if you've ever been in a you know a section like that, then you know what I'm talking about. There are portions of the Bible that are essential, that are important, that God has given us, and yet they don't capture the human imagination in the same way that the section of Philippians two that you know, I quote so often. Uh, verses five through eleven captures our imagination. I mean, when you talk about Jesus coming in the in the flesh and humbling Himself and uh, being obedient unto death, like that, you know, it's not like that. Well, this passage that we're in, which is verses nineteen through twenty three, and really we could extend it all the way through the end of the chapter, but we won't. This passage that we're in is one of those, um, and. Um, The Bible commentary that that I am uh, relying on in my own preparation, um, it's written by a man named Gordon Fee, and I appreciated that when he came to this passage in his own notes on the text, he said, this is a really tough passage uh, to to get to the bottom of. It doesn't mean that there's some complex teaching here that is difficult to understand. He means he's not even sure why it's here, why Paul wrote it. He doesn't get it. Now, let's read it, and I think you'll get a sense of what I mean by that. In verse 19, uh, Paul writes, again, to the church in Philippi, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus." But you know his proven character, that's Timothy's, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Now, you read that and you say, okay, it seems pretty plain. He's saying that he wants to send Timothy, but Timothy is not the one that he sends with this letter. That's the the guy in the next passage that we won't get to tonight, Epaphrodites. So he doesn't. So, what this whole passage is basically saying, I hope to send Timothy to you soon. I don't know when that's going to be. I hope to come to you soon. I don't know when that's going to be. And Timothy has great personal character. Like, that's. That's pretty much summarizing these verses. And if this was omitted, like the letter would go on in Philippians, and you wouldn't lose any great doctrinal peace. And yet, these passages are not omitted. They're in the Bible. They're sections where you say, okay, we want to faithfully go verse by verse through here. God has put this in His Word for us. What's here? And when you dig a little bit, um, you do start to mine the depths of... of of something here, and you start to to probe at something very real and practical that you can get something out of. But a lot of study in the Bible is like that. One of the disadvantages, I think, sometimes of a Bible reading plan is it can, hopefully it doesn't, but it can condition a person to just plow through texts. And there's nothing wrong with just reading big sections of the Bible, but there's a lot of Scripture that you know, as I read from Psalm 1, you really have to meditate on and think on. Like, you have to process. Now, you have to say, it. now, I wonder what that means. Does it mean this or does it mean that? And you, you have to consider. And I think here that Paul is um, sharing a little bit more about his own condition and the state of things around him. Um that he feels like the church in Philippi needs to know. So let's start. We'll just go verse by verse through it. I don't think it'll be a long message today. But he begins in verse 19, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Verse 23 begins similarly. It says, therefore, I hope to send him. And verse 24 begins again the same way. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. In other words... Uh, one of the things to pick up in this passage is, when Paul talks about his future plans, he knows that he is at the beck and will of a sovereign God. Um, he would like to send Timothy. Um, he's not guaranteed that he'll be able to, so he says, I trust in the Lord that I'll be able to send Timothy. He would like to come himself. I trust in the Lord that I'll be able to come visit you shortly. He says it three times in a span of, what, five, six verses? Um, Now, if you are, you know, a careful reader or if you've been through, like I was, anything like Bible drill when you were a kid and you memorized a bunch of verses, uh, when I read verses like this, I think of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. There is the idea when we approach a sovereign God that... There are various, from our perspective, paths that we could choose in life, but God knows all of our steps before we take them. And if you were listening, as John read from the Psalms this morning, that was a key theme in what he read. Um, The Lord knew me in my mother's womb. He, He knew me when I was still, you know, in the deepest parts of creation, when I was before, when I was just, you know, elements on the periodic table yet to be assembled into any kind of genetic code, um, God knew me. And it says in that text that John read from the Psalms that all of my days were numbered before me. Everyone was there ahead of me. Um, we serve a sovereign God. And that, uh, that is in Paul's mind when he thinks about what he would like to happen and what he would see happen in Philippi. I don't know if that's how you think of things. I don't know if that's how you approach your life. Um there is the the teaching from Jesus that uh you know uh we should not, you know, uh, plan, you know, two years in advance and lay it all in stone and say my life is grounded on this. We don't know what's ahead of us, but God does and we should say if the Lord wills, I will go so and so here and buy and trade and sell if the Lord wills. And when you read that passage, you could be you know, maybe excused for saying, well, it makes it seem like you use the phrase, as the Lord wills, and you're supposed to use it in some kind of you know, trite way. Like, just add it, make it, a, a you know, an addendum to whatever it is you're planning on doing. Like, say, it's still okay to say, I'm going to go on vacation, just throw in the, as the Lord wills, or as the Lord wills, or as the Lord wills. And I'm sure there are people who do that. I'm sure I've done that. But the concept behind it is we should be in such lockstep with God in our daily lives. We should be in such fellowship with Him that it's not merely lip service to acknowledge His sovereignty and His will in our future steps. It's not merely lip service. It's real service to God to say, I am your servant. You have the path laid out before me that I will walk. And if it's your will that I do this, then this is what I'll do. Um, it's in the Lord's Prayer that we're supposed to acknowledge. Yeah, you Think about all the things you pray for. But it's in the Lord's Prayer that we're supposed to ask that His will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. So Paul in this you know, planning phase of what's going to happen in the church in Philippi is uh, being uh, in the lowly position of a faithful servant where he's saying, God has a sovereign plan for what's going to unfold in my life what's going to unfold in the life of the Philippians. And this is what I'd like to happen, but whatever the Lord wills is what will happen, and I'm okay, I'm okay with that. You know, this morning I talked to Matt and Suzanne, and, and you know, Suzanne is getting ready to have a, a baby, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, a conversation about things that they're going through for the first time, and I kind of remember what that's like, and having children is scary. Um, Having children can be intimidating, can be frightening because you have hopes and you have things that you would like to see and you may have great confidence that the Lord will bless you in particular ways and yet the Christian has to say as the Lord wills and the Christian has to be prepared to say nevertheless not my will but your will be done and that's modeled for us in the text and I appreciate the fact that it's modeled in these verses here. Um, when I am going through things that I did not anticipate, when you are going through things that you do not anticipate, uh, issues that may seem just tertiary to your goals in life or things that are fundamentally necessary for things to work out the way you want them to work out. And when those things start to look awry or start to fall into doubt, the Christian has to have the confidence and even draw peace from being able to say, not my will, but your will be done. Um, This is not working out the way that I wanted it to work out. But what I ultimately want is for it to work out the way you want it to work out. And that's what we find here in verses 19, 23, and 24. Uh, A second note here. Notice uh, the person of Timothy that's called to mind. Verse 19, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Now the reason is not... So that they can be encouraged by Timothy. The reason given is so that Paul may be encouraged by Timothy's report. It says, I want to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. In other words, I want to send Timothy to you because he will return and give me an honest assessment of how you've received this letter and how things are going there and what God is doing in your life. And so I want Timothy to go. He's not sending him now. But I want to send him to you shortly and then, you know, Timothy is a, is a person in the Bible that we know is around. You know, we're reminded in the New Testament letters that he is present. We are, are told just a small part of, of Timothy's experience in the book of Acts. And Paul writes two letters where he's speaking to Timothy uh, later on. But we don't have a lot from Timothy in the text. So it's pretty interesting to me that Paul gives this commendation in verse 20. Now, this is what it says. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Now, I I underline two things there. I underline the part where it says, I have no one like-minded. That's one statement about Timothy. Timothy. And then the second thing I underline, sincerely care for for you or for your state. And then in parentheses, I put the next verse, which is meant to describe uh, the concern. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Um, So that's how Timothy differs from the others. And then we pick it back up for a final note on Timothy in verse 22. But you know his proven character, and I underlined proven character. And here's how he describes his proven character. He says that as a son with his father, he has served with me in the gospel. Um, So three things I think Paul is commending Timothy for. Uh, The first in verse 20, that he is like-minded with Paul. He and Paul look at things the same way. They see them the same way. Second thing, Timothy's pastoral or ministerial service is a sincere care for God's people. Sincerely, He will care for your state. Um, So there's a sincerity to what Timothy is doing. Um, And the third thing is there is a proven character in Timothy. Which is not to say that perhaps no one else has character, but in Timothy there is a proven character that uh, Paul has confidence in. I think these are uh, just about the greatest compliments that uh, Paul could pay a person. Um, First, a comment on like-minded. If you go back to verses 1 through 4 in chapter 2, if you turn back there, you will see this is Paul's call. And you will also see that it is impossible to separate Paul's call for like-mindedness To Paul's call for humility and service to others. Look at verses 1-4 through just as a reminder. I'll read them to you. He says, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection and mercy, then fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And then here's the pivot. Here's the connection. It's inseparable from the idea of being like-minded with Paul and what follows. This is how Paul thinks in verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. We might call that without sincerity. If you say, well, I'm serving God, but it's really out of selfish ambition or conceit that you're operating. But in lowliness of mind, here's the mind of Christ that he goes on to describe uh, in this Great theological statement he makes about Jesus who, being found in the form of a man, humbled himself, became obedient unto death. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. If, Paul, if you can see it, Paul is summarizing the entire life and ministry of Jesus in that, in that simple phrase. Let each esteem others better than himself. That's what Jesus did. That's the mind of Christ. That's lowliness of mind. That's what he means when he goes on in verse 5 and says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. Jesus esteemed the needs of others as greater than his own. That's what Paul is doing. And you can't separate the like-mindedness of Christ, which we're supposed to share in the church with this attitude of servanthood, of sincerely, not not out of pretext, not out of pretense here, but sincerely serving others and their needs with priority over your own. Now, you could say, well, I might have like-mindedness with someone without, you know, any kind of servant attitude or without, you know, there there are lots of ways we can look at things the same way. Certainly, there are lots of people that share the worldviews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But those aren't the worldview of Christ. That's not the mind of Christ. When... Paul is calling the church in Philippi to have one mind. It's not, hey, pick one way of looking at the world and just all do it together. No, it's the one way that you should look at the world is the mind of Christ, which is with humility, serving God by prioritizing the needs of others over your own. That's the mind of Christ. Um, That's what they're supposed to share in common, and that's what he means of Timothy. Timothy does that. Um, Timothy's life is being lived to meet the needs of others rather than himself. Um, That's who he he is. And you can see that. I mean, Timothy is not as old as Paul. We pick up in verse 22 that Paul even uses the, the metaphor of a son and a father to describe his relationship to Timothy. But Timothy, who's a younger guy, I don't know, 20s 30s maybe younger he's not going around building a life for himself what were you doing in your 20s and your 30s well uh (laughs) you know uh probably doing some of that basic adulting type stuff is what you're probably doing or maybe doing right now or preparing to do and you know we're trying to to establish some things you know it would be good if i can exit my 20s and 30s and have a few things figured out that would be nice um What Timothy has figured out is that he's going to serve the Lord by trailing Paul in his ministry, not in the the limelight, but sort of out of the limelight, and supporting Paul and teaching alongside him and working alongside him. What's Timothy's bank account look like? Not much reason to think that there's a lot in there, you know? What's his personal, what's his dating life like? Can you imagine uh, that first date? You know, what do you do for a living? Well, right now I'm in Rome. Why? Well, you know, uh, our leader's in jail, and so I'm helping take care of him. <laughs> it's not, not marriage material, necessarily. You know, I mean, that's uh, what's next? Well, you know, as the Lord lives, I hope that I get sent to Philippi. What's going on there? Uh, they're persecuting Christians there. They're putting them in jail. and Really? I mean, Timothy was living his life uh, for others in a very practical way. He shared that mindset with Paul. The second part of verse 20 here, where he says, who will sincerely care for your state. Um, I think, um, now we're fallible, so I want to be careful here. We, We could get this wrong. But I think most of us have probably been in a situation where we got the feeling that Someone was saying they cared about us, but they weren't really in it. They, they didn't really mean it. Now, you've got to be careful with that, because you could be wrong. <laughs> You're a sinner, and <laughs> you don't really know what's in the other person's heart, but that feeling is not altogether foreign to the human experience. To say, well, you know, they say they're there, they say they care, but I don't, doesn't doesn't feel like it. Um, Paul... Recognizes here that there are people, even Christian leaders and teachers, who do what they do, but not with sincerity. Not with sincerity. That came up in the first chapter of Philippians, if you remember, when he said that you know there were some who preach Christ out of envy and strife. Um, some that preach out of goodwill. The former preach Christ. This is verse sixteen of chapter one, from selfish ambition not sincerely? In other words, they're preaching Christ to make a name for themselves. Maybe they like standing up in front of everyone and speaking. Maybe they're trying to amass a following so that churches and people will give to their ministry to support them. It's selfish ambition that they're preaching Christ for. And their envy and strife they have towards Paul, I assume, is the fact that Paul was a very well-known, perhaps the most well-known person of that age in terms of preaching, ministering, traveling around, and had experienced a great deal of success starting churches in new places. So they're preaching out of in. They're not sincere in what they're doing. When they stand up and they preach the gospel, it's not because they care about you and they don't want you to spend eternity in hell. It's because they want to win you over to their discipleship for their own gain, for their own notoriety. Um, Peter warns about People like this. You're gonna take your Bible turn to Second Peter chapter two. We'll just look at the first three verses. Second Peter's towards the end, if it's a little challenging to find. It's not a big book. If you find First Peter, you're just one away, so that's encouraging. Second Peter chapter two. I just want to read the first three vo- verses. Give you a second to turn. Peter is also dealing with uh, false teachers, teachers who are not true. Um, and we read this. He writes to these guys, there were also false prophets among the people. He's talking about ancient Israel. And there were, if you read your Old Testament. There were people who, not, who were not truly prophets of God, but they said they were because they liked the notoriety and the fame and the, the, the uh, reward of being a prophet of God in ancient Israel. He said, there were false prophets among the people then, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, uh, untrue teachings, even denying the Lord who bought them. and bring on, Now, that's the end. They don't start there, but that's that's the end of it. And bring on themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Now, here's... Here's their motivation. Verse 3. By covetousness, they want things for themselves. By covetousness, um, they seek their own, not the things of Christ Jesus. It's verse 21. That's Philippians 2.21. They will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Um, you know, uh, we want to be uh, real cautious or careful before you call someone a false teacher. Um, there's only a handful of people I've ever called a false teacher. But when you see the ministry of someone, if you start to see markers in the ministry that their ministry, their service, their care is not sincere, that ought to be, that ought to be alarming. That ought to be concerning. That ought to be concerning. The heart of a Christian servant is to serve others and their needs above their own. Now no one's going to be perfect in that. In fact, um, in Paul's letters to Timothy, which happened at a later time, he's almost exhorting Timothy, be careful, don't get caught up in, in, in personal or worldly ambitions or lusts. Timothy himself may have ebbed and flowed with this a little bit because he's human and Sometimes you're doing really good spiritually and sometimes you're not doing very good spiritually and all you're thinking about is money or all you're thinking about is is this you know, challenge in front of you or this job that you want to get out of or this project you need to complete or this kid that you're struggling with. You know, that's, that's to be human. It's to ebb and flow with our desires, often the desires of the flesh, often in conflict with spiritual things. But at the heart of true and sincere Christian service is a genuine desire to see others flourish in the gospel, in service to Jesus Christ. I can't think of a higher compliment for Paul to pay to Timothy than to say this about him. Hey, this is a person who I I testify is sincere. Um, he genuinely cares. Um, final thing about Timothy here. Uh, notice the call out in verse 22, if you're back in Philippians 1 or uh, Philippians 2, verse 22. um, He says here, For you know his proven character, that as a son with his father he served me in the gospel. How was Timothy's character proven? Well, he says, As a son to a father he has served me in the gospel. Yeah, but what did that entail? What are some of the things that Paul went through during his ministry? Well, he was beaten with rods, he was run out of towns, he was shipwrecked, had several near-death experiences, was snake-bitten once, thought he was going to die there. Um, At various times, he was arrested, uh, brought before, you know, imprisoned, sometimes let out, sometimes not. Brought before very big public courts with his life in the balance. Literally, all that Festus or anyone would would have to say is kill him and the soldier would do the job. Um, Timothy faithfully served as a son to a father through all that. Now, I don't know what kind of relationship you had with your father, but I'm assuming that the relationship that... Paul is referencing between a son and a father here would be between a faithful son and a good and loving father. A good father, not a bad one. And if you could imagine what it would be like to be a son watching your father go through every single one of these trials and to be powerless to do anything about it, that would be a lot of turmoil. That would be a lot of conflict. So what Paul is saying here is. Timothy has watched me and has served me as I endured all of this, and his compassion and concern for me was sincere as a son to a father. It wasn't just, well, you know, I hope we make it out of this one alive. He felt genuine anguish watching Paul go through this. He suffered uh, with the cost that Paul was paying. He served faithfully through it all, and he didn't leave him. He didn't abandon him. Why? Because as a son to a father... He was serving with Paul in service to the gospel. He saw this worthy of service. That's what proven character looks like. There's a passage from Romans 5. I'll just read it to you. It's just a few verses. Now listen, um, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Now, if anyone experienced tribulations, it was the Apostle Paul, as we have just stated. But we, we glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. When you go through these things, it produces endurance, okay? You learn that you can endure and persevere by God's help through more than what you realize. It produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character. I think by this, Paul's definition of character is the kind of person who faithfully learns to endure through difficult things that would drive a less person, a person with less character, away. There is something about going through the difficulty and persevering. In other words, going through it well, so that when you come out the other side of going through the difficulty well, Your character has been proven in a way that fundamentally changes how you are looked at. How you are seen. How you should be witnessed. And then it says character produces hope. You think about that. That makes sense. (laughs) Do you have a lot of hope for people with low character? Probably not. (laughs) You got to put your eggs in the basket of somebody with very low character? Someone who hasn't proven that they can get through anything? Yeah, sure, I'll I'll ride with that person. No, it makes sense. Tribulations are not bad, he says, because when you go through them, it produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character and character hope. And he says in verse 5 of Romans chapter 5, where I'm reading, now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. Um, Timothy was a person of character. And at the end of the day, I'm not sure you can ask for much more than to have people in your life who have proven character. Um, People who are sincerely caring for you of proven character. Who genuinely care about you. Um, People who have the mind of Christ. That's who Timothy is. Um, so verse 33, Therefore I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. Um, just three application points as we finish this up, uh, and uh, I'll close with these um, three little things. Again, I don't think there's anything profound here. Uh, application number one here. A servant of God is compelled to serve. A servant of God needs to serve. A servant of God serves you don't need to concern yourself about greatness or your own personal accomplishments or achievements those are people serving themselves a a person a servant of god serves god um, and that's what timothy had proven that was his character um he knows that he can do what god has called him to do that's philippians four thirteen in a nutshell I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I know I can do what God has called me to do. I have a quote here uh, that I like. It's from Steve Prefontaine. Some of you know who that is. Some of you don't. He was a, a great middle distance runner uh, in American history. He died very young, very uh, Uh, He set at one point in a three-year span, he set every uh, single middle distance uh, record, track record from 2,000 to 10,000 meters, every uh, American record, uh, ran in in, uh, one Olympics and was preparing to run in another uh, when he died. But this is what he said about the way he ran, because he ran... Um, he would push the pace at various points in the race as hard as he could. He, when he went to the Olympics, the only time he ended up going, uh, he, you know, he didn't win. But his goal was uh, to push the pace so much that he would run a four-minute final mile in his race, which is an unbelievably fast mile, a four-minute mile, and that in order to beat him, somebody else was going to have to run faster than that in his last mile. In other words, that was his, that was his philosophy to running, that... Pushing the limit to go as fast as he can. And so he became a very popular person for that mindset, and he gave this quote. He said, most people run a race to see who's fastest, but I run a race to see who has the most guts. That's a good quote. That's a pretty good quote. Um, a, a person who trusts in God can endure things that a person who does not trust in God uh, will not endure. Because a person who trusts in God is not going to quit. And they may not always be on cloud nine. They may not, their life may not always be a life that other people look at with envy and with strife. But they will do more in the end because they run with perseverance. They serve God. They believe that God will sustain them. Um, you know, To run with guts means you believe, you have an internal belief that you're not going to fall apart. That you're going to make it. Um, The reason why you slow down is either physically you can't run any faster or I better save something because I'm not going to make it. That's not how Paul lived. Paul did not live a life of slowly pacing himself. He served the Lord with all his heart. And he believed that the Lord would sustain him through that. And Timothy was a part of that. Second thing, um, something to be said about this. Now, in his life, I, I don't know how much people respected or admired Timothy. He's kind of, you know, like a second fiddle to Paul, you might say. Some people would, would have seen that. Um, but just a second application point. You will never be more famous than Timothy. You'll never be more famous than Timothy. Never. Um, uh, Michael Jordan is not more famous than Timothy. Muhammad Ali, not more famous than than Timothy. No world leader more famous. You'll never be more famous than Timothy. Christian people all over the world for 2,000 years have been learning and talking and discussing and thinking through the life, the words of Paul to Timothy and Timothy. You will never be more famous than that. Here is this person who lowered himself, who humbled himself in service to God faithfully, just sincerely trying to care for others. And if there was ever someone that this applies to, we can say, therefore God has highly exalted him. You'll never be more famous than him. I don't care what you do. You'll be the richest person in the world, the wealthiest person in the world. He's got a 2,000-year head start of fame on you. You'll never, you're never going to touch that. And it calls to mind two Bible verses, 1 Samuel 2.30. It's the Lord speaking in rejection of Eli. For those who honor me, I will honor. Those who honor me, I will honor. There's another great running movie, Chariots of Fire. And at the end, the American goes up to uh, the main uh, hero, the protagonist in the race, getting ready to run he- and he puts a piece of paper in his hand right before the race. And, uh, and you know he unfolds the paper and he looks at it. And right before he's getting ready to run in the Olympics, you know, the, the paper says from this American, who he doesn't know, but the American knows that he's a Christian. And he puts a paper in his hand and he unfolds the paper and it says, in the good book it says, the, the Lord says, I will honor those who honor me. That's a Bible verse. That's something to live life by. James 4.10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You don't have to exalt yourself. You don't have to go prove anything to anybody. You don't have to go have the best job or the nicest car or whatever it is. You don't have to prove yourself to anybody. All you have to do is have the proven character to have the mind of Christ and to serve sincerely and faithfully. God will take care of the rest, He'll take care of the rest. There is not a person who has served the Lord with all their heart, humbly, sincerely, who will be disappointed when they stand before the Lord in eternity. He will take care of the rest. Last point, and this is by this is an encouragement in vain with what I just said. Take, um, take the low road. Take the low road. Um, take the road of humility. Take the road of the servant. Take the road of the minister. Take the low road. That's what Jesus did. That is the mind of Christ. Um, I told you I've been reading commentary by Gordon Fee. Here's what he says of this. He writes this. It's hard to imagine a more certain antidote to any number of struggles that consistently plague the local church, not to mention larger bodies and denominations than this one. That's what he says. That God's people all be like Timothy in the terms of their putting the interests of others as a matter of first importance. He says this, here again, the way of humility, taking the lower road by the way of the cross, is on full display. This is Jesus, and this is why he says taking the road of the cross. This is Jesus in verses 8 and 9 of this chapter, who being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Take the low road. And when you do, here's an encouragement from Isaiah. We'll pray and close with this. It's Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31. The prophet asks, Have you not known, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths will faint. Young people will grow tired. And the young men shall utterly fail. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I ask that you'll give your people in uh, this gathering this morning uh, the courage uh, to serve with good character. Sincerely. Uh, Taking... A seriousness in what they do. Knowing that there is a great audience to the actions of our lives. Humbling ourselves. Not seeking to make a great name for us. But seeking only to make a great name of you. Calling people to worship you. To come to a right relationship with you through repentance and faith. Father, give us the heart of Christ, of Timothy, of Paul that we should see the deepest needs of others as more important than our own. And then, Father, reward us, bless us, strengthen us, lift us up, exalt us in your own time if we have proven our character and if we are faithful until the end. Help us to live life with guts. With the passion that believes that you will sustain us, even when things are very difficult, help us to honor you, and may you receive glory and honor and praise for how we live. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.